Well, good night, Revision. How is everyone tonight? Yes? My name is Josh. Uh, my family and I, we run a ministry. He almost had it right. It's Chi Alpha. He just flip-flopped him. But we run a ministry called Chi Alpha. It's a campus ministry at IUPUI, which I, but I don't know if you heard, the school name is changing. It will be IU Indianapolis because IU and Purdue got a divorce, and IU got to keep the name. So that's what happened. And uh, that's going to be taking place soon, but... We love what we do there. Um, we believe, as like Ross was speaking in his message, that if we can make disciples who make disciples that make disciples, we will literally transform the world. I just want to give you something that like, this is mathematically, just it just works out. If you had someone who is gifted, and let's call this person super evangelist, and every time they preach, they want a thousand people to Jesus, and they did that every night, right, then at the end of one year, they'd have like 365,000 people they've won to Christ. And someone who faithfully disciples one person at the end of a year would only have one. If you do that after five years, you know, super evangelist is, is reaching over a million people and the faithful discipler only has 32. And if anyone was to start a church and after five years, they only had 32 people, most people would be like, you probably shouldn't do that, right? But the thing that's crazy is by the time we get to year 25, the faithful discipler, not only has he surpassed by far the super evangelist, the faithful discipler would have reached almost the entire U.S. by just faithfully discipling one person, and then the next year you both faithfully go disciple a person, and you just keep multiplying that out. That's what we're doing at IU's campus there in downtown Indy. So we just, we meet students on campus, we disciple them, we raise them up to go make disciples the next year, and we just continue that on. So we just wrapped up our first year. We had 40 students get involved with us this year. We got to uh, lead to Jesus and baptize 13 students this year. So I'm really, really excited about it. It was a good year. Um, so before I get into this, I just do want to just make you aware. Um, the Lord laid it on my heart some years ago to write a book about my journey with uh, struggling to do evangelism. Some people are just naturally gifted at this. And some people are not good at it, right? And I would not say I'm a naturally gifted evangelist. As a matter of fact, I was the kid in youth, like when the youth pastor would be like, you can go to your school, you could step on a chair in the cafeteria and preach the gospel when everyone to Jesus. I'm like, I'd rather die. I don't want to do that, right? I am not going to stand on a chair in my cafeteria. Like, I, I'm just not doing that, right? Um, and so I always felt like a terrible Christian because I'm like, why, like, why do I not feel comfortable doing evangelism? Why is it weird for me? Ah, oh, I don't want to do this, right? People are like, let's go downtown and do the way of the master. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that, right? And what I realized is when I was taking a journey through Scripture, Ephesians 4 says that, that God gives five gifts to help build up the body of Christ. To some he made to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And when I read that, I realized I was like, so only one-fifth of the body of Christ is actually gifted for evangelism. The other four-fifths, we still have to do the work of evangelism, but we're not good at it. And so I was like, Lord, what does it look like to be one of the four-fifths to reach people for Jesus, but this is not your natural gifting? And that whole journey through Scripture and living this out with what I found is what's in this. And so I wish I had some to sell with me, but I literally sold out right before I came. So I have one copy. I'm going to give it away to for free for whoever just wants to come up here and get it real quick. Or nobody, I guess. People are like, why would I get your... Dude, it's yours. 
you're the only one that showed initiative. Everyone's like, everyone else is like, this dude's a schlub. I don't want his book. That's okay. That's yours for free. Um, but anyway, if you are interested in that, it's for sale on Amazon. I'd love for you to pick it up and let it be a blessing to you. Okay, so part of my story is that I've been a city kid my whole life. I grew up south of Boston, Massachusetts for the first 13 years of my life. And then because of my dad's job, we had to move to the Midwest. And we moved to Indianapolis. And I grew up on the east side of India. I graduated from Warren Central High School. I've been an east side kid my whole life. Since we've moved, I live back on the east side of India again. I, I know nothing about country living. I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I've never lived that way. I know nothing about it. I don't even know the lingo. And when we left Indiana to go do campus ministry first at Missouri State University, the only place we could find a house is in this small country town outside of Springfield where the campus was. And so I moved in, and, and I'm really big on, like, well, I want to go ahead and be a part of a church that's doing things in our community. And so we go to visit this country church right down the road. And I, when I say country, like, I walked in, and people are walking in for church with cowboy hats on. And I was like, Lord, what am I doing here? This is not my vibe, right? Uh, but there's, you don't have my vibe in, in the country. And so, but I'm like, you know what? Listen, Lord, this isn't my community. We're going to get plugged in. We're going to serve here. And so they had this big event called God of Our Fathers, okay? And God of Our Fathers is like a 4th of July celebration on steroids. Now, when I say steroids, we're talking about a church that was like maybe 200 people. But what they did for this 4th of July event with fireworks and carnival and everything, there would be thousands of people that would come to this thing, okay? It was one of the biggest things in the entire county. And so they were like, we need people to help be, you know, parking people. And I'm like, I can do that, right? And I even got one of those cool, like, like flashlight thingies, you know, like, I don't know, the orange cone thing, whatever. I was, like, doing tricks with it. I was, I was like, this is going to be awesome. So I get there. And uh, the guy that's running the parking lot team, he's got this really thick accent from the Ozarks of Missouri. And he's like, boy, what are you doing them flip-flops on? And I was like, what's wrong with flip-flops? He's like, don't you know where you parking cars, son? And I was like, in the parking lot, right? That's where cars park. And he's like, no, man, in the cow field over there. Like that. And I was like, so what's about to go down? He's like, you about to step in the cow pie? Like that. I was like, what's a cow pie? I'm guessing it's poop, but I'm not sure, and I'm not really comfortable with this. And then he was like, you better pray to God you don't get chigger bites on your toes. And I was like, what are chiggers? What is happening with my life, right? I was in a place where I was like, someone could have told me about this, but until you experience it, you don't get it. Does that make sense? And I tell you that story because I want to take you to a passage of Scripture where I think Jesus is going to say something to the disciples where it's like they hear it, but they don't get it. And, and in order for them to get it, he's going to take them to a specific place to see a very specific site to help them understand what he's trying to do, what he's about to unfold. He's going to unfold a concept called the church. He says, guys, I'm going to build a church. And, and he wants them to really understand what he's trying to get at when he says this. So if you have your Bibles, you can go to Matthew chapter 16. As we're going to camp out tonight, uh, verses 13 through 18, I want to read it to you out of the NIV. It says this, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, 
You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. Now, Jesus, leading up to this, Jesus and his disciples, they leave this town called Bethsaida. They take this 32-mile journey to this other town called Caesarea Philippi. Today, if you were to go to Israel, Caesarea Philippi is now called the Golan Heights. That's the name it goes by now. But at one time, Caesarea Philippi went by even a different name. And the name of that city was called Peneus. Now, Peneus was named after a Greek god in mythology named Pan. And, and here's why I want you to get this, because it's actually really significant. Um, I, I want to show you a picture of what Pan looked like. He's this, he's this like half goat, half man. He's this god of nature, wooded, rustic areas. And because of that, there was no temples built to this god. He was worshipped in caves, in the woods, right? Like he, they were in nature whenever they worshipped him. He's the god in charge of music. We have an instrument named after him. It's called the pan flute, if any of you ever heard of that instrument. But he was also the god of fear. And it's where we get our English word panic from. It's from this god, okay? Now, Jesus takes his disciples on this 32-mile trip, and he decides to stop at Peneus, a place where he's not known, he is not worshipped, and he wants to unpack one of God's great ideas which is to create a community known as the church. A community so strong and so resilient that he says that even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Now, the city gate, when he says this, I don't know what goes through your mind, but you have to understand, if we were talking in today's language, right, you might think like, listen, I'm going to build this church and even the front doors of your building will, you know, they're not going to be able to prevail. That's not what he's saying when he's saying the gate. You have to understand what happens at a city gate. At the city gate is where all of the elders of the city met to talk about business and to talk about what was going to happen in the community, how they were going to move forward. It's the government. That's where the meetings took place. How we would use it in today's language is, is if Jesus was talking to us today, he'd say, hey, I'm going to build a church, and guess what? Even the most crazy boardrooms aren't going to be able to come against this thing. Right? And you start to understand the, the craziest things that happen in D.C. can't, can't un, upend this thing, right? If he said that, you start to go, oh, government, right? And that's what he's saying when he says the city gates. So a reference to the gates of hell is not talking about a door where people go in and out, but a, refer a reference to the governmental authority that existed in that city. So when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, he's not saying hell can't open up its gates to let any demons out to affect us. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the governmental authority of evil cannot defeat the community that Jesus is going to build, specifically the church. Let me say it this way. The leadership of hell cannot do anything to negatively impact the expansion of the church. Are you with me tonight? Because, like, that's really good news. Because the truth is, in Christianity, I just feel like we have way too many testimonies that make the devil sound way bigger than what he is. We're like, oh, he's just messing with me. He's beating me down. Listen, he got defeated on the cross and through the resurrection. The devil only has the amount of power that you ascribe to him. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you've ever seen this famous painting. There's this famous painting of Michael the archangel with his uh, foot on the top of a dragon with a sword. Anyone ever seen this famous painting? No? Like four of us, right? 
Okay, well, it exists, right? And the dragon is supposed to be the devil. You want to know what's crazy? Is that painting, if you trace it through history, it has changed over time. And as it changes, the devil gets bigger. But when the painting first came out, the devil was the size of a gnat. And Michael the archangel was like, get out of here, you pesky thing. But over time, because we give the devil so much attention, he just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And now we think he's all this, this major powerful being. He's defeated already. Stop giving him more power than what he has. Don't even give him your attention. He doesn't deserve it. He's defeated. And I want you to notice that Jesus doesn't say um, the word synagogue. He doesn't say, hey, guys, I want you to know I'm going to build a synagogue. He's, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to build a church. And at this time when Jesus is talking to his disciples, you have to understand the church is a new idea. This isn't something that was like happening. You know, if I say church, you all can think of all kinds of places all over our community, but that's not, that's not what they have in mind. As a matter of fact, the only framework they have for the word church, this Greek word ekklesia is, is what we call it, 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 basically comes from a Greek concept that was made popular by Rome when they, when they took the nation of Israel over. An ecclesia was a gathering of people that were called out and separated from the rest of the city. They met to participate in legislation. They were able to declare war. They were able to make peace treaties. They, they could make alliances, and they could elect officials. The Roman ecclesia would often gather around the emperor or the king to hear and record his words. They were also responsible to make sure his desires and his decrees were being implemented all over the kingdom. Some theologians have taught that the Caesar, after explaining what he wanted happening in his empire to his ecclesia, he would say to them, now go into all the empire and give them the good news. Does this sound familiar at all? Because Jesus says to what? The church, go into all the world and go preach the gospel, the good news. Go make disciples. Jesus is taking something that already existed and he's reframing it. He's not, he's not, he wasn't doing something brand new. So he, here's what I want you to get. The ecclesia was a group of called out ones who were invited to hear the king's voice, know the king's heart, and then declare the king's message throughout the kingdom in order to reproduce the king's culture throughout the empire. And Jesus says, I'm going to build one of those. So what that means for us, for our understanding, is the Christian community we call the church is a group of people who are called out and invited to meet with the king in order to hear his voice, know his heart, and declare his message to the whole world in order to reproduce his culture in our schools, workplaces, neighborhoods, and cities. Can someone say amen? Listen, y'all, look, let me help you out. Let me tell you how we do church on the east side. People talk back at you, okay? Can you help me out with that? I know we're in Hamilton County, but like, talk to me, please. All right, I got to know you're with me, okay? So here's, here's, here's what he's saying. Like, I'm going to build this thing called a church, and what you're going to do is you're going to spend time with the king, who is Jesus. You're going to listen to what he says. You're going to hear his heart, listen to his plans, and then you're going to go do that until our whole world starts to look like his kingdom. 
Listen, the whole point of this is not to get a bunch of people ready so that they know they go to heaven when they die. If that's all there is, if that's all the gospel is, is about you accepting Jesus, then guess what? After you get saved, you're done. There's nothing left to do because that's the point. Unless it's not the point. Unless the point is that you coming to Jesus is just the starting point. But there's a whole lot of stuff to get done in that time before you breathe your last breath. Are you with me? Yes, so we got to get busy, right? This is what Jesus had in mind when he said, I'm going to build a church. It had less to do with the place we go to gather and more to do with the mindset of spreading a kingdom culture into our communities. What does it look like to spread a culture? I'm a Colts fan. My best friend is a New York Giants fan. Anywhere I go, even in his space, I make sure he knows that the Colts are a far better team, okay? And, and he may not like it. He may kind of push against it. He may want to argue with it. But I'm just like, at the end of the day, okay, we have one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and you got his little brother, okay? Like, he's just a little brother. That's all he is, okay? And we fight about this, but I bring Colts culture with me to every football fan. I don't care. I see you right here, Steelers fan, all that stuff, right? I just bring it with me everywhere. I'm like, no, Colts, baby, right? Because that's, that's what I love. That's the idea of kingdom culture. It's whatever culture you're in, you bring the kingdom with you. You bring Jesus into it. And can I tell you that kingdom culture is the most important culture you belong to? Listen, I work with international students. And I don't go to those international students and come up to them and be like, the most important culture I have is an American culture. The most important culture I have is a kingdom culture. Because I'm a citizen in heaven first before I'm a citizen of anywhere else. And so it doesn't become like my country's better than your country. It becomes, hey, Jesus has a heart for Kenya. And he wants you to be someone who loves him and follows him and take his culture into Kenya just like he wants me to bring the kingdom culture to the university here in the U.S. Like, we have to understand our citizenship is with Jesus first, and his culture is the one that dominates. And that's the one we're supposed to be spreading and, and taking with us everywhere we go. So, how are we doing? Well, my question is this. Your workplace, your neighborhood, your campus, does it look like his kingdom if not, then there's work to do. Now, I want to take, take note that when Jesus builds this church, he does not build it in a valley or on a hillside, but he builds it on a rock. You know what? I think you might have come out way too early. That's okay. That's okay. You want me to give you a cue? Would that help? Yeah, you, all right, if you just want to chill there. Like, all right, thanks. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't build it in a valley or on a hillside. He builds it on a rock. Notice he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. What does he mean by that? Well, there's, throughout history, there's been two primary interpretations of this. The first one is the Catholic interpretation. And that is that Jesus is going to build his church with Peter as the first leader, or as they call him, the Pope. And they say that because Peter's name is, is Petra in Greek, which means rock. So what they say is Jesus is saying to Peter... Flesh and blood did not reveal the truth of who I am, but the Spirit of God did. And upon you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. And I've grown up my whole life in, in mostly Protestant circles. 
and Protestants are really good about looking at Catholics and being like, boo, you stink, your theology sucks, right? And it's just like, uh, listen, when the Holy Spirit breaks out in the book of Acts and 3,000 people are added to the church, who is the first person to get up there and lead that movement? It's Peter. So before we, like, hate on our Catholic brothers and sisters, be like, they might have a little something right, okay? But what we do in the Protestant interpretation is we say, no, Jesus is going to build his church upon the rock-solid truth of him being the Christ. Jesus asked the question, who do people say I am? And they answer, the Christ. And Jesus says, bingo, and I'm going to build my church around that truth. And I think that's awesome. I think that's a great interpretation. I want to suggest maybe a third interpretation. Maybe something we're missing because we're not taking into account where they're at when Jesus makes this statement. Jesus says to Peter in Caesarea Philippi, he says, you are Peter, Petros in Greek, which means detached stone or boulder. And upon this Petra, which is a mountain or cliff face, I will build my church. Jesus says, upon this mountain, I will build my church. And guess what? In Caesarea Philippi, in Peneus, there's a mountain right where they're sitting called Mount Hermon. Now, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to understand the significance of this particular mountain. Mount Hermon is the tallest mountain in modern-day Syria. On one of the sides of the mountain is this large cliff, and in the cliff is a cave. You can go there to this day. It still exists. I have a picture of it for you. I do. There it is. The Cave of Pan is what it's known as. Okay? Now, I want you to notice there's like these little archways there, right? And if this picture was in color, what you would see is like it's a faded red because there was like bloody sacrifices that they would make and then they would put in these archways. But if you look at the far left to that... that uh, black kind of cavern, that's the entrance to the Cave of Pan. What runs through the entrance to the Cave of Pan is this river, and the river feeds the Jordan River. And what they would do is they would have this festival once a year where they would come together to worship Pan. The name of the festival was called Pandemonium, another word we have in our language. And at this festival, they would do all kinds of really terrible, gross sexual things in worship to Pan. And during this time, they, would, they believed that if you were to go into the entrance and you were to get onto the river, it would take you to the underworld. It would literally take you to hell. They, they actually called that entrance to the cave of Pan the gate of hell, is what it was called. And so Jesus takes his small group of Jewish boys on a field trip. And I, don't, I can't even imagine the permission slip for that one, right? So why did he? Well, the local pan worshipers believed that that was the gate to the underworld. To, to put it another way, it is literally the gate of hell. Jesus takes his disciples to the gate of hell, and he says, on this rock, I will build a church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus takes the community of God and that God wants to establish and drops them in the midst of one of the most evil, immoral, dark, and godless places that you could ever fathom. And it's there that Jesus says, even in a place like this, 
I can build a church. My people can bring the kingdom of God onto earth. And even at a place like this, things can change. Here's a quote from Pastor Heath Adamson on this passage. He says, at a place where moral compromise reigned, poverty and marginalization endured, pluralism and perversion were normal, and unspeakable immoral behavior perpetuated suffering and injustice. This is where Jesus promises to build the church. So what does that mean for you and me right here, right now? Long before you were born, God had an idea. His idea was to create a community that would showcase his ways and his heart to the world. The community was supposed to be a foretaste of what heaven's actually like. The church is supposed to be a trailer to the feature film of eternal life. That's, we're supposed to be a taste. And through the community that God designed, of which we are, are a part, we were given the power through the words we speak and the way we live to literally pull the kingdom of God down to the earth. This is what Jesus is praying in the Lord's Prayer. He's like, he's like Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying, I want this place to look like that place. And he says, how are we going to do it? Through us. We're going to do it. And sometimes I think we forget how significant our role is. I say that. You can go ahead and play. I say that because from my perspective, and I want everyone to really focus in on this, and I want you to, I want you to stay with me because I might step on your toes here, but I need you to hear me. I need you to know this is coming from a heart of love that really wants to see things change in people's lives because there's just too much brokenness all around you and far too long, Christians are just apathetic to what's happening around them and doing nothing about it. So please hear my heart here. I desperately want to see our world transformed for Jesus. So here's, here's what I need you to understand from my perspective. And this is the perspective I come from. I was a church pastor for 15 years. I've been doing campus ministry for five years. And a huge part of what I have to do in campus ministry is I'm a, a, a supported missionary, so I have to travel to churches and speak all the time. So I get to meet a lot of Christians. And from my perspective, I meet a lot of Christians that believe that because they attend church on Sundays, volunteer in a classroom, and have joined a small group, they are being the church and living the kingdom of God. But Jesus didn't unfold the idea of the church in a synagogue, which would have been their religious meeting place. He did it at the gates of hell. The Apostle Paul didn't advance the kingdom of God. He didn't put his life on the line and simply attend small groups. He went to dark places that have never heard about Jesus and he brought the light. And although I believe, hear me, I don't want you to be like, man, that Josh guy, he's like anti-church. No, not at all. I think there's amazing things that happen when we get together corporately and we sing songs of worship to Jesus. As the worship team was leading us tonight, I was singing in the back of the room, I'm singing, yes, Lord, I feel you here in this moment. I think that's powerful. I think there's something good about us getting in groups and hearing the word preached. 
and maybe some of you introverts don't like this, but I even love when, when I get to church early and I can hang out with people in the foyer. Some of you introverts are like, I come to church late so I can avoid that. But to be honest, that's not being the church. It's pretty easy to be the church in a church service, a small group meeting, or hanging out with other Christians. I mean, it's easy to do that. You want to know what's hard? Going to dark places and bringing Jesus there. It's hard beating an almost 42-year-old man walking on a college campus and going up to an 18-year-old freshman and say, you want to hang out? They're like, you're weird, bro. I've had kids look at me and they go, are you like a dad of another student or something? Why are you trying to play volleyball with us? Because Jesus called me to this campus. Because there's almost 40,000 students at my university downtown and so many of them don't know Jesus. And I'm going to be a light here. And when you have to do stuff like that, you better believe you need the Holy Spirit. No one needs the power of the Holy Spirit to just show up to church. That don't, that don't take any strength. Believe it or not, even if this is hard for you during a worship service, like, I guess I'll lift my hand. You don't need the power of the Spirit for that. You just need to get out of your head. But you need the power of the Spirit when you're going to walk into a dark place and you don't know how it's going to go down. You better believe that you're going to be praying. And my thing is, it hurts me because I just meet so many Christians that there is nothing in their life that would require them to actually need the Holy Spirit to do anything. They just live so safe. And Jesus didn't call us to safe. He called us to spread the kingdom. And he did that at the gates of hell. So listen, I, I want you to hear me. It's easy for Christians to leave the hard work of light shining, gospel spreading, kingdom advancing to a few called ones that we call pastors and missionaries. But there are no bench seats on Team Jesus. Nobody gets to ride the pine. Everybody's expected to get in the game and play. And to be really clear, attending church on Sundays is not playing in the game. Attending church on Sunday, that's the locker room. That's halftime. That's where you get fired up. This conference, this isn't spreading the kingdom. This is to get you fired up so you will go spread the kingdom. This is halftime, y'all. This ain't the game. You got to get off your butts and get out of this place at some point and go play the game. And that's happening Monday through Saturday in your workplaces, in your universities, among your coworkers, and your friends, and your neighbors. That's where you play the game. God's going to call you to places where evil and brokenness abound. He's going to lead you to places of pain and despair where it seems impossible to see any success. And it's in those places that we can most powerfully confess the lordship of Jesus. Listen to me. Jesus came to be the Lord of everything, not just Christians and church services, but everything. He came to be the Lord on the streets where junkies and prostitutes live and work. He came to be Lord on university campuses where students are unaware of his grace and love. 
He came to be Lord in your neighborhoods and your workplaces where your coworkers and neighbors struggle to find peace and joy. Your generation right now is the most anxious generation that has ever lived. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. People don't know it. So what will you do? Because it ain't Ross's job. It's yours. Ross don't live in your neighborhood. I don't work at your workplace. Like, Jesus, who's going to win all these people? You are. You're the missionary to that place. And if we started seeing ourselves this way, maybe we could turn some things around. Because God doesn't just call a few called people to go win the world. He says to every Christian, go and preach the good news. Go make disciples. That's everybody. You have to get in the game. But here's the good news. You're on the winning team. Because if Jesus is Lord at the gates of hell, then he's the Lord of all. That means he's going to win everywhere. And listen, I don't know what stats you read or what you've heard, but can I tell you the church is winning. It's growing. The kingdom of darkness is not stopping the growth of the church. I hear stats all the time that the church is dying and less and less people are coming to church and, you know, COVID this, this, I just don't really care. You want to know why? Because I think sometimes we have a short-sighted perspective. Maybe in the U.S., Americans are coming to church less. But if you're thinking with, from a kingdom mindset, like South America is on track to be entirely Christian in my lifetime. The underground church in Iran is the fastest growing church in the world. People are coming to Jesus by the hundreds. Just because you're not seeing it in your neighborhood doesn't mean it's not happening somewhere else. The church is growing, y'all. But now it's time for us to get in the game. And so here's how I want to close. I want everyone to stand to your feet. And if you're like, Lord, I'm ready to get in the game. I've sat on the sidelines for too long. I don't even know what it looks like for me to be in the game. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I'm actually terrified. I'm shaking in my shoes at the thought of I have to do something. I don't know what it's going to take, but I know you're calling me to do something. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand and say, I know that's me. He's calling me to do something. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I want you to close your eyes, keep your hands raised, because our hands being raised, this is why we do this. This is a sign of surrender. You know what we have a lot of on the east side? Police making arrests. And every time they say freeze, hands go up in the air. You want to know why? Because they say, hey, I'm not, in, I'm not in charge. You're in charge. You're in control. And when we do this, we say to Jesus, you know what? I'm not in charge. This ain't even my life. This is your life, Jesus, to do with what you want. And so I surrender to you. And so, Lord, we come before you right now. And God, I know for every region of this area that's represented by people here, whether it's Marion County, Hamilton County, Madison County, wherever people are from, Lord, you have a heart for every single soul that resides in those places. And God, it is time for us to stop asking you to do something that you actually gave us power to go do. 
Lord, I don't want to pray for you to fix the brokenness if I'm not willing to walk across the street and help my neighbor. God, you've empowered us to go be your light. You've empowered us to go be your witnesses. You've empowered us to be those who go and make disciples. So, Lord, may we do it. And for, and for those here, they're like, Lord, I don't even know where to start. God, would you just embolden them to just take a step? Just take a step. In Jesus' name, I want you to look at me. One of the things that will cause you to not live out the kingdom is allowing yourself to be intimidated at what it might take to do it. And I'm not saying, like, overnight, you have to become this, like, super evangelist who wins everyone to Jesus. I'm not even asking you to, to go to your neighbor and, like, hi, we've never talked, but can I talk to you about Jesus? Because, frankly, that's weird. What I'm telling you to do is just keep your eyes open. Look for someone that needs something and then go do something about it. So let me share with you this story. And then, Ross, with your permission, I'd like to, like, speak a couple things prophetically, if that's okay. And then let's turn it back over to you. Um, so in my world, in Chi Alpha, imagine if you had a church, but 25% of your church left your church every year. Because we have seniors that graduate, and so then they move on. And so every year in August, we feel this immense pressure which I don't mind, I think it's a good pressure, that if we don't reach incoming freshmen, we will not have a ministry in the future. And what stats tell us is within the first two weeks of school, every college freshman pretty much meets the community they're gonna do the rest of their life with. So we have two weeks to make as many friends as possible, and then hopefully they wanna hang out with us, and then we disciple them to Jesus in their four years there. And on our campus, when we were at Missouri State, we were helping with move-in, and a couple of students in our ministry that were leaders, they were, they were students who were building small groups of people they were gonna disciple. They saw this girl walking by herself by the college bookstore, and they decided to go approach her, and there was nothing about her that would say, I want you to talk to me. Everything about her on the external was like, please don't talk to me. But we train our students, like, don't let that be a barrier. Just go. And so they're like, All right, we're going to go talk to her. And, and you know what happens when you, like, don't know how that's going to go? You start going, oh, Jesus, Lord, which is awesome. You need that. I feel like every Christian needs an oh, crap, what am I going to do right now moment. Because <laughs> that's when the Holy Spirit does something in your life. And they're like, what are we going to do? And they just walk over there and they're like, hi, my name is so-and-so. And they just, and she's like, not really engaging. And they're like, what are you about to go do? She's like, I'm going to my dorm. Like, you want to hang out? Uh, come on, we're going to play games. It's going to be fun. I don't know. Hey, come on. And they just like force her into it. They're like, we're going to be your friend whether you like it or not. So just say yes, right? And they get her to hang out with them. She starts coming to our Chi Alpha meetings every Monday. She gives her life to Jesus. She gets water baptized. She gets discipled. She becomes a leader in our ministry. Now, here's the crazy thing. We used to do this parents' banquet where we'd invite parents of students to come 
and they get to hear about what's happening in the ministry with the students there. And it's at the parents' banquet. We're like, hey, we'd love for you to just give a testimony about what, you know, God did in your life in Chi Alpha. She gets up and she unfolds a part of her story that we didn't know. And she said, when I was on campus, I was at the deepest, darkest place of my life. I had grown up in a home where I had been abused in every single way you can think of. I've been told I'm not wanted, nobody cares about me, I'm disgusting, I'm ugly, unwanted. Like, she just hated where she was in life. And she said, and then here I was at this huge campus, and I don't know a soul, and I was so depressed. She's like, I made a plan to go to my dorm room and kill myself. And, and, and I had it planned out. I knew exactly how I was going to do it. I was on my way to make that happen. But then a bunch of Chi Alpha students showed up and they forced me to play board games. And I said, okay, maybe tomorrow I'll do it. But tonight I'll play the games. The problem is they invited her to hang out the next night. And the next, and she kept saying, well, maybe the next day, maybe the next day. But then it became, but maybe I'll just give Jesus a shot. And maybe he can do something about my depression and my anxiety. And her life got transformed. And she's living for Jesus today, alive. I don't need you to go preach the gospel to a, a room of thousands of people. I just need you to walk up to a student like her or a coworker like that and say, you want to hang out? And then let Jesus just take the conversation. And if you're good at your part, he will always open the door, especially if you're living a life that's begging people to ask questions about how you're living. I have college students to my house all the time. My next door neighbor, never even, like I say next door, he's like several doors down, never met him before. He stops by my house, goes, can I, sorry, my name's Terry, I'm the guy who lives down the street, can I just ask you a question? Like he's like, why do you always have 20 or 30 college students at your house? What is happening here? <laughs> I said, I'm a missionary. He's like, what? to where? And I was like, IUPUI. And he's like, that's a thing? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And we started talking about Jesus. Just live your life for Jesus, invite people into it, and he will do the rest. And he will transform the world.